Barbie, a fashion doll for kids released by Mattel in 1959. She might only be 11.5 inches tall, but her legacy stands a lot taller. Over 1 billion Barbie dolls have been sold. She's adored by kids all over the world, while collectors pay over $25,000 for a chance to own some of the more rare dolls. $9,000 is what I would consider downhill because, um, you know, I, I would have savings if I wasn't collecting this. But it hasn't always been smooth sailing for the blonde icon. What's your problem with a woman cooking in a pink kitchen? Because the marketing industry pushed that pink button when they want girls to buy stuff. From her eyebrow-raising creation story to her, at times, iffy role model qualities. Don't you have anything relevant to say? Right on, say it, sister. It's not funny, Bart. Millions of girls will grow up thinking that this is the right way to act. Today, we're exploring the real story of Barbie. Barbie, you're so dazzling. I need my sunglasses to look at you. Good morning slash afternoon slash evening. Please circle whichever applies and welcome back to Learning Tings, the show where we pick a topic and we learn some things about it. Rocket science, really, when you nail down on it. Now, just a tiny little bit of housekeeping off the bat before we get going. Uh, if you're on audio, I am actually wearing a pink latex Barbie dress. An interesting purchase of mine uh, a few years ago. Have never actually worn it out of the house, but here we are today, finally with a fitting occasion to be wearing a pink latex dress. But, you know, the housekeeping of this is it moves as one unit. So if you happen to hear latex in the microphone how lucky are you to have found a podcast so immersive so before we introduce barbie it's important to understand like what toys were available to kids in the 50s so we're talking things like frisbees the pogo stick uh silly putty mr and mrs potato head and dolls were really popular in fact i mean dolls have been exceptionally constant throughout the dawn of time like we've always played with like a little doll of some sort whether it was like knitted or porcelain some of them are like a mixture of both so there's like you know the porcelain the spooky ones i'm talking about like the porcelain face and then they just have like these little floppy legs and so when you put them on the ground they ragdoll hence the name and they just kind of flopped down so like that was the extent of what dolls were available to kids but most importantly particularly in the western world dolls were always representative of an infant or a baby they were never adults like they were always kind of fostering this culture of like nurturing and raising this little baby like typically the only narrative that these kids in the 50s had to like play with their dolls was like, this is my little child. I will take care and raise my little child, even though I too am a little child. So adult dolls weren't around, which is my point. <laughs> so when Ruth Handler noticed that her daughter was playing with little paper dolls of like adult cutouts and giving them an adult storyline, she started to notice that there might be a gap in the market for kids and for a toy for, you know, little girls at the time that wanted to play with a more adult storyline. And she thought that was pretty interesting. Luckily for her, that dream wasn't going to die because conveniently her husband was the co-founder of Mattel. Now, the reason this wasn't just simply, okay, let's just create a new doll is because this was new for, particularly for Mattel, a, a global toy company, to notice that kids were 
using an adult storyline with these dolls. And that's what Ruth noticed about her daughter is that even though she was just playing with like a little cutout of a paper, she wasn't giving it the classic like infant storyline, like I'm babysitting. Like what are those dolls called? The baby, the baby ones. Oh, this is going to ruin me. My baby born, newborn, my born, baby born. Is it baby born? Is it baby born ultimatum? It's featuring Matt Damon. The point is, the big thing that she noticed was that Barbara, her daughter, was giving these paper dolls an adult storyline. She was playing house, so to speak, with careers, relationships. So she took it to Mattel because, as we know, conveniently, her husband was the co-founder, Elliot. Uh, and they were really unenthusiastic. It didn't even slightly get across the line. And that idea was kind of just like put to bed. But then they went on a family holiday to Europe in 1956. And that is when they discovered a doll called the Build Lily. Now, you know those satirical newspaper cartoons? Well, in a German newspaper, there was a satirical cartoon of this kind of like raunchy woman called Lily. And she got by in life by like seducing wealthy men, which, you know, a dream. She was quick witted. She was known to kind of talk back to men in authoritative roles, which was pretty confident of her given the social norms at the time. But this cartoon became so popular amongst society that they actually created like an accompanying doll to go with the cartoon. So you could only buy these dolls from like bars, tobacco stores or adult toy stores. And they were often given as kind of like a gag gift to like a man on his bachelor's night or like people hung them from their rear vision mirror in their car. But they weren't actually, they weren't at all manufactured for children. They were definitely kind of like an adult gift, kind of like a gag. So when Ruth went to Europe and found that some kids were playing with these dolls and this doll had this like whole wardrobe of little interchangeable outfits. She was like, ooh, this is exactly what my daughter was kind of looking for in America, but it wasn't available. So as I said, not every child would play with this doll because parents in Germany, like, you know, they found it fairly inappropriate for their kids to play with the doll. So not every kid would have these dolls, but they still were pretty popular when you know, maybe the kid had found it in the car and was just like, oh my God, I want to play with it. And the parents were like, well, fuck it, who cares? So it was kind of interesting given the backstory of the Build Lily doll that Ruth Hansler would kind of lock on to this doll for inspiration for her doll. The other interesting thing to note was the idea of this separate wardrobe with separate pieces that, you know, we all know the line, sold separately. So... Ruth obviously saw that as just like a huge business opportunity that you sell the doll and then you can just sell all of her clothes that the kids are going to want to have to dress up their little dolly. Now, Build Lily had three components that were completely new to the doll manufacturing world. Firstly, her head and neck weren't just kind of like glued onto her shoulders. They were actually separate pieces. You don't need me to tell you that you are able to pull off the head of a Barbie doll. I'm assuming we all went through that little masochistic 15 minutes as four-year-olds. Uh, but Bill Lilly was like that. She had a separate head, a separate neck, and then they were kind of connected to the shoulder so they could move organic uh, organically. It's not the right word at all. They could move 
independently. Thank you so much for trusting me through that process. Never give up on yourself. The second thing was that her hair was like this cutout scalp that was actually bolted into her head by a hidden screw. And the third thing was that she had movable elements. Her arms, her legs moved, and there was like a hip structure that was actually completely original to Build Lily, which meant that she could rotate, she could turn, she could move her legs. And remembering dolls at the time, as the t term goes, ragdoll, like you would just put the doll down and it would just flop. The head would fall to the side, the legs would just kind of fall over. But the fact that the build Lily could sit down and her legs were still straight and you could move them out, like that was new. I know it, <laughs> it seems like I'm talking about the most riveting concept right here, but trust me, that was new at the time. That wasn't a, a typical thing. Ugh. Holy shit, dude. Tiny segue here. Hay fever really gets me. I'm not like allergic to grass. I'm not. If you are allergic to grass though, how, how's that going? So when Ruth got back from her trip to Europe with a bundle of Build Lily dolls under her arm, she used the Build Lily doll as pure inspiration for the doll that she was about to create. And what I mean by use it as inspiration is she control C, control V, and then changed the font. Barbie made her official debut at the American International Toy Fair in New York City on March 9th, 1959. And that date is used as her birthday moving forward, which is fitting. I'm not going to fight that. Now, you've probably connected the dots already. If you haven't, let me give you a hand here. Ruth's daughter was named Barbara. The Barbie doll was named after her. And it debuted with a black and white zebra swimsuit, a classic top knot. I believe the term they used was signature top knot ponytail. And it came in uh, blue. <laughs> blue. It was available in blonde, brunette or redhead. Just quickly on that. I actually kind of didn't know they did that. I didn't realize that there was brunette Barbie and redhead Barbie. Like I always just associated blondes with Barbie. I just thought they were just kind of like different random dolls. I didn't realize they too were considered Barbie. Now the Barbie doll when it was released was marketed as a teenage American girl. And the clothes were designed by Charlotte Johnson, Charlotte, <laughs> sorry, Charlotte, by Charlotte Johnson, who was the Mattel fashion designer. And the clothes were actually hand-stitched by home workers in Japan, and the original dolls themselves were manufactured in Japan. But the clothes being hand-stitched is crazy when I tell you that in the first year of operation, they sold over 350,000 Barbie dolls. And they were $3 each. But two years after the Barbie release, the company that made the Build Lily actually sued Mattel. Their reasoning was that while they understood and they actually thought it was okay that they used the Build Lily as inspiration for the Barbie doll, Mattel was claiming that all of this new technology, like all of these things that the Build Lily doll had, that they copied and put in the Barbie doll, they were claiming that it was Mattel's like brilliant little brainchild and they never once credited the Build Lily. Now, I can understand why they wouldn't want to credit Barbie to the Build Lily, given it was kind of like an adult toy about a gold digging woman, <laughs> but especially given Barbie was marketed as a children's toy in the US. But nevertheless, in 1964, they actually settled out of court and Mattel bought the rights to the Build Lily and all the patenting for things like the hip movement and things like that, because that company had actually patented those technologies that Mattel stole. Uh, and they bought it for a whopping, get ready for this, $21,600. Can you believe that? Can you believe we don't have a jacuzzi? 
Now, the big main change that Barbie brought to the marketplace at the time in 1959 was that she was an adult doll. Early market research actually showed that parents were really unhappy with it. And they specifically cited her chest, saying the chest is inappropriate because there are breasts on it. And they actually called for the breasts to be removed. But Ruth didn't back down because she knew that this was the whole reason and this whole legacy point as to why she wanted to create the Barbie doll in the first place because her daughter wanted to give them adult storylines. So naturally, the Barbie doll should be an adult. And what do we know about adult women? They do indeed have breasts. I'm sorry if that shocks anyone. So she didn't back down until her and her husband, co-founder of Mattel, Elliot, were actually fired. Unrelated to the doll, allegedly her and her husband were just publishing false financial reports. So do with that what you will. I can't be bothered to go into it any further. Now, thinking about where we are as a current society, it's really hard as parents to prevent your child from knowing about a certain toy. We've completely relinquished that control, I believe. Um, and if you haven't, how's that going? Because kids can basically find out about a toy from anywhere. They flood YouTube channels that are directed at kids. All the ads have to do with uh, children's toys. Think about like morning television on a Saturday morning when the cartoons are on. Every second toy, uh, sorry, every second ad is about a toy. Even when I was growing up and I wanted Animal Crossing, my mum wouldn't let me get it for whatever reason, you'd have to ask her. Uh, but I remember chucking one of the great tantrums. It was definitely up there. I remember writing this psycho little note, um, which was basically just a letter to God asking him, why God, why can't I have Animal Crossing? And then I left it on the desk, hoping that my mum would see it. Um, we're not a religious family by any means at all. So I'm not surprised it didn't work on her. So back to when Barbie first released, given that Mattel knew that this early market research showed that parents weren't at all happy with the design of the doll and the adult features, Mattel realized they were going to have to cut the middleman, being the parents, and just advertise directly to the kids. And so the Barbie doll was actually one of the first children's toys that had a marketing strategy based heavily around television advertising. And then that set the tone for most toys throughout the 2000s and, and you know, going further until YouTube took over. But yeah, they, they actually set the trend and the Barbie doll started the trend for advertising toys to kids on TV. Barbie dress for swim and fun is only $3. Her lovely fashions range from $1 to $5. Look for Barbie wherever dolls are sold. So who is Barbie? In the 60s, they actually gave her like a fictional backstories and a series of little books. And uh, I'm just going to read this. Barbara Millicent Roberts was born to parents George and Margaret Roberts in Wisconsin. She has an on and off relationship with Kenneth Carson, who we'll get to later, and has three younger sisters, Skipper, Stacy, and Chelsea. Now, Chelsea was actually originally named Kelly, but apparently in Europe, everyone called her Shelley. And so they later renamed her to Chelsea so that they could have just like a global name, a one name system that everyone would use. And I have a question. If you're European, can you explain why that might be the case? Like, is it a dialect thing? Like Kelly just doesn't work in some languages? I'm just trying to understand why it was 
Kelly and you guys were like, that sucks. Let's call her Shelly. Like, was it that? I don't know. It just, that fascinates me. I don't understand that. But she's Kelly. She's, sorry, she's not Kelly. She's Chelsea now. She also had a younger brother called Todd, who was Stacy's twin, as well as a baby sister called Chrissy and a cousin named Francie. But they've all been excommunicated for whatever reason. This sentence on the Barbie official Wikipedia absolutely sent me. Barbie's friends include Hispanic Teresa, Midge, African-American Christy, and Stephen. I, I don't, I don't have any comments. I just, I'll leave that there with you. Barbie has over 40 pets included, but not limited to cats, dogs, horses, a panda, lion cub, and zebra. She drives a pink beetle and Corvette convertibles, trailers and jeeps. She also has her pilot's license and operates commercial airliners. But wait, there's more. She's also the flight attendant. She's a busy gal. Hello, everybody. Uh, the question today, a homely one. Should husbands help with the weekend housework? Oh, good Lord, no. No, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that. I don't oh, think I should. Why is that? Well, poor old man, he works too hard to wives and have nothing to do. In order to understand the controversies that Barbie's imminent career developments would cause, we need to take a little trip back again to the 60s to understand what life was like for women. Woohoo, this will be fun. The 60s was a decade of extreme transformational change for women. It was post-World War II, they were the baby boomer generation, or producing that generation rather. And while the men were away at the war, a lot of women had to get jobs. We all know this. They had to put food on the table somehow. So a lot of men actually came back from the war to find their wives with a new thing, a job. So once the war was over and we were in the thick of the 60s, women were starting to join the workforce, but, well, the paid workforce, which leads me to why they were particularly displeased with the gender disparities. And that's what started this big feminism wave in the 60s. Eventually, Americans came around to understand the main goals of this wave being ahem, equal pay for equal work, because at the time women were only getting 60% of the male pay rate, an end to domestic violence, an end to the limits put on women to hold a higher ranking role, an end to sexual harassment, and a sharing of responsibility around the house as well as raising children. And I won't lie, that was kind of depressing to read because, yeah, we've come far, but those are still really imminent issues for us. And that, I don't know, it just like that was such a dampener to read that that was what they were fighting for in the 60s. And as I said, yeah, we've come far, but not far enough. Journalist Katie Martin wrote that the 60s was an edgy time of transition, change and confusion. And Betty Friedan wrote in The Feminique Mystique, the problem that has no name burst like a boil through the image of the happy American housewife. In 1960, the very first contraceptive pill was actually approved by the FDA. And by the end of the 60s, more than 80% of housewives in America were actually on the pill. Uh, that was huge. That was huge for women because all of a sudden they had their own kind of independent control over their own personal and even professional freedom. And particularly because the latter was a really new concept for them to have a professional career. Equal pay legislation did pass in 1963, 
But again, it didn't really solve the problem because it just meant that it was pushing women into jobs that were classed as female jobs, which were typically lower paying. And that's still where we're at today, unfortunately. Not entirely. Obviously, there are some kick-ass women doing some kick-ass jobs and some kick-ass high-paying, high-ranking roles. But that's still a very uh, familiar problem. Which brings us to the Barbie-sized void that was there to fill. Little girls at the time wanted to look up to a woman that had a myriad of opportunities at her feet. Financial freedom, personal freedom, and the opportunity to go into whatever career she wanted to do because that was kind of what Barbie's value was. That was her core value that, yeah, I can do anything. And by God, did she. With every new Barbie that was released, and there have been over 170, she had a new career. Barbie has held over 250 jobs. But to cherry pick, here are some of my personal favorites. Game show host, rapper, Avon representative, McDonald's and Pizza Hut cashier, food truck operator, soda fountain operator, sign language teacher, animal rescuer, which extends to marine, arctic and panda rescuer, eye doctor, United States Air Force pilot, Thunderbirds pilot, United States presidential candidate 1992, 2000, 2004, 8, 12 and 16, park ranger, astrophysicist, paleontologist, sea world trainer, matador, Ferrari F1 driver, train conductor, Christian Louboutin cat burglar, Jillaroo, which did actually stump me for a moment there and for my audio listeners, Jillaroos are obviously sheep, <laughs> sheep herders, I believe. Starfleet security officer and tooth fairy. While she did debut as a businesswoman and fashion model, Barbie was actually an astronaut by 1965, which means that technically she won the space race four years before Neil Armstrong actually made it. So there's that. Sorry, Neil. Kenneth Sean Carson was debuted in 1961 as the natural counterpart to Barbie and... Interestingly, Ken was also named after Ruth's other child, Kenneth Handler. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a there's a point there to be made that Ruth was setting up the doll versions of her children to be mildly incestual. But oh, anyway, Ken met Barbie on the set of a TV commercial and their romance blossomed on and off from there. Now, when Ken was first debuted and actually for a long time, he had straight arms that, that couldn't bend and his hair was made of felt which they actually had to change because they didn't realise that when the hair got wet, it would fall out. And I just find this whole concept really funny because from the get-go, Ken has always just been Ken, an accessory to Barbie. And I kind of like that, that they've held that theme throughout. Like, does Ken need range of motion? No, he's an accessory. It's fine. In the 90s, Earring Magic Ken was released, which was thought to kind of be an ode to the gay community at the time, and it became really popular for that. It had an earring and like because of the placement of the earring, they were like, yep, this is for us. This is ours. So you can have that. Ken is an ally. Pass it on. This is a funny one. In 2010, the Palm Beach line was released and it featured Sugar's Daddy Ken. That was his name. And everyone was like, what? Huh? And Ken was like, had a bit more of a mature appearance. And he also had this little dog. It was like a Scottish Highland Terrier or something. And people were kind of questioning the appropriateness of his name. And Mattel defended it by saying, no, 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 the dog's name is Sugar, making Ken Sugar's daddy. And I just think that's fantastic. 
because Mattel seemingly have been trying to stray from this like inappropriate adult content doll and yet they keep shooting themselves in the foot. What's with that? So when Barbie was first released, she was obviously under huge scrutiny because she appeared too mature to parents. Like for a teenage doll, that's actually kind of fair because she did have like really, I mean, it's Barbie. She had perfect facial features and she did look fairly mature. So they released a doll called Midge, who would be Barbie's best friend. And she was kind of released as like an answer to that. And she had like a softer face. It was a bit fuller. She had a bigger forehead. Like like she was meant to look, I guess, uh, more normal. Um, but her figure was exactly the same. But anyway, Midge. Introducing Midge. The big controversy for Midge was that when she married her boyfriend, Alan, they released this Happy Family line. So the Happy Family line was released and it featured Midge pregnant with uh, her daughter. And the weird part about it though was that her stomach had this like magnetic uh, latch that you could like pull off. And then inside her womb, <laughs> there was like a tiny little doll of a baby curled up in the womb. And people thought that that was uh, a little bit bizarre. So the main controversy there for parents was that because Barbie was released as a teenage doll, they assumed or like worried that this existence of a pregnant midge would lead children to think that like teen pregnancies was a good idea. Um, but like I, she was married, like the, the family, happy family line came in terms of the storyline of like Midge and Alan were adults who had just gotten married and now they were starting their American dream and their family. So like, I personally think that's a little bit of a reach, but parents will always do that. But Walmart actually pulled the line off the shelves. They were like, nope, we are not selling this because they got so many complaints from customers. And Mattel actually produced a counterpart version specifically for Walmart where Midge wasn't pregnant. In 1992, the Teen Talk Barbie was released and this was actually pretty cool to me. It was a Barbie that had 270 possible phrases, but each doll was only programmed with a random set of four. So of 270 possible phrases, each Barbie got four random ones and the idea was that no two kids next to each other would have the same doll. Some of the phrases were like, I love shopping or wanna have a pizza party? And one of them was math class is tough. Now, uh, to be a bit vulnerable with you here, I actually think that's pretty fair call. Math class can be a little bit tough, uh, but only 1.5% of the dolls said that because of the distribution of the random phrases. But because it was a little bit, uh, I don't know, I suppose it could be taken the wrong way. <laughs> By the time it got to the media, it funneled down to math is hard instead of math class is tough. So naturally, that did kick up a little bit of dust. But three months after the Teen Talk Barbie was announced and, and released, they actually ended up pulling it off the shelves and Mattel announced that they would give a swap to anyone who had a doll that was saying math class is tough and they would give them a new one. It didn't say it. The Barbie babysitter line came with a tiny little doll-sized book titled How to Lose Weight, and it featured the extraordinarily helpful advice of don't eat. 
Slumber Party Barbie looked genuinely depressed, and I can understand why, because the tiny little scales that came with her kit were fixed at 110 pounds, or 50 kilograms. In 1997, Mattel did a collaboration with Oreo, and they released an Oreo Barbie, and everything was smooth sailing. She looked pretty cute. She had a little Oreo handbag or something, um, but then, as they do with a lot of dolls, they released the black version of the doll, um, but uh, this this time, that wasn't the, the greatest idea, stuttering my way through this one. <laughs> but because Oreo is actually a really derogatory term that is used against black people when you're accusing them of being or acting white. So like the cookie, black on the outside, white on the inside, to create a black Barbie with Oreo plastered all over her wasn't their sharpest idea, dare I say? So naturally the shelf life of that one wasn't too long either, and I promise I'm not making this up, but they did end up doing a collaboration with the Ritz Cracker, and that became known as Cracker Barbie. I'm not kidding. When Engineer Barbie debuted, there was a little bit of controversy because people thought it was just defeating the whole point of saying, yes, Barbies, girls can do anything, because the only things that this engineer Barbie could actually make were like household chore items, like a washing machine or a clothes hanging rack. Becky the Barbie, the first wheelchair Barbie, debuted in 1997, and it was, again, another really pivotal moment for Barbie's history. It was like, yes, accessibility, we love this, until she couldn't fit through the doors of the Barbie dream house, because apparently it's not accessible for wheelchair Barbie. There was a student-teacher Barbie before there was actually a teacher Barbie, which is only interesting because there was already an astronaut Barbie. So it's like, girl, where are we at here? Like, are you... I think you could probably be a fully-fledged teacher at this point, but I suppose we have covered that math class can absolutely be tough. When Computer Engineer Barbie debuted, she had an accompanying book for kids, and the Barbie itself wasn't an issue, but the storyline of the book was because she was a video game designer, but then she needed her male co-workers to, I quote, turn it into a real game. And then she infects her computer with a virus and they basically tell her to piss off because they were like, Barbie, you've done enough. That didn't go down so well with the feminists, let's just say. In 2010, when Video Girl Barbie was released, it actually was fitted with a, a real video camera in it that was accessible through Barbie's back and it could record up to 30 minutes of video and then be sent to a computer to watch later. But the FBI jumped on this one pretty quickly. They didn't tell Mattel to recall the line. They just sent a memo out to every law enforcement agency across the country to say like, hey, this is a thing and it might be used to create explicit child content. Now, they weren't necessarily foreshadowing this. According to CBS, it didn't happen. Thank God. But they were just kind of saying like, hey, when you're doing a search for evidence, don't discount a Barbie doll on the floor because it might have something on it, which I thought was fascinating and good from them, actually. In 2003, Saudi Arabia outlawed the sale of the Barbie doll because allegedly it did not conform to the Islamic ideals and values for women. They said, Jewish Barbie dolls with their revealing clothes and shameful postures, accessories and tools are a symbol of decadence to the perverted West. The ban was temporary, but at the time in uh, Muslim na nations, they did have a doll that was available as an alternative. It was called the Fuller doll. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Fuller, maybe? It was really similar to Barbie. It just represented more of the Islamic values, but it wasn't nearly as popular. 
Hello there. I'm just jumping on here. This is days after I actually recorded and filmed this episode. So this is actually a little exclusive just for the audio listeners, because as if I could be bothered to doll myself up again, sit in front of the camera and record this for 15 minutes. No. So it's just for you guys. So when I was telling my mum that I was doing a Barbie episode, she stopped me and went, hold on, have you gone into the subliminal messaging yet? And I was like, pardon me? Basically, my mum is a graphic designer of many years. She wears many hats, but one of those hats is a graphic designer. And she's also a university lecturer of graphic design. And so she said, I told you this when you were really young, but you may have forgotten about it. Something that she used to teach was these subliminal messages that Mattel would put in their ads way back when. She didn't actually mention when, and I'll get to that in a second as to why I didn't actually get mum on this episode for this. Long story short, apparently Mattel used to put subliminal messaging in their television advertisements. So however many frames per second back then, I believe it would have been about 24, for a certain number of frames, they actually flickered the word sex across Barbie's forehead. And funnily enough, sales from men actually skyrocketed after these subliminal messages were executed because they were buying the dolls for their daughter. And I just think that is so unbelievably bizarre and gross that <laughs> men would be targeted by something as simple as a three-letter word printed across a doll's forehead to buy a product. But I'm not here to comment on any further on that. I just thought that was really fascinating and I did want to pop that in here. But the reason we didn't dive into that more in this episode is just because when I said, mom, you should like, I don't want to research this and then present it on the podcast. You should actually be on this with me and explain it to me. But then she went to look at her old notes and it seems to have been wiped from the internet. Like we couldn't find anything on this online to serve as, uh, you know, proof. So while this absolutely did happen and my mom used it as an example when she was teaching advertising in universities, Unfortunately, we cannot find any solid proof of it online except for a couple of, of random different things on Reddit. But that's why it, we didn't go into it any further, but it is still fascinating and I hope you enjoyed that. I can't believe you're just going to stand by as your daughters grow up in a world where this, this is their role model. I had a Malibu Stacy when I was little and I turned out all right. Now, Barbie is a bit of a contentious topic and I don't mean the plastic doll. It's like the ideals that Barbie sets and the effects that she's had on society. So we'll explore that for a second here. When Cindy Jackson was growing up, she became more and more obsessed with looking like Barbie. By age six, she was completely obsessed with this idea and she thought she looked really plain and ordinary in comparison to the doll. Cindy, who is now 66, holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most consecutive plastic surgeries at 52. 52 cosmetic procedures. Three developmental psychologists did a study on 128 children aged from five to eight. And basically what they did is they split the children up into four groups and each group got a different doll. One of these groups got a Barbie doll while the rest got kind of less, let's say, perfect dolls. Now they found that the kids that played with the Barbie doll over that period of time reported having lower body self-esteem and a higher desire to be thinner than any of the other kids who were playing with other dolls. University of South Australia found that the likelihood and the chances of a woman naturally having Barbie's physique was one in 100,000 
while researchers at Finland's University Central Hospital found that if Barbie was a real life-size woman, she would lack the necessary body fat percentage required for a woman to menstruate. There's no doubt that Barbie has had an effect on kids. Barbie isn't just a doll anymore. Barbie is a concept. Barbie is a lifestyle. No, it really is though. Like you use it as an adjective. Like it can be derogatory in some ways. Like you're like, oh yeah, she's a Barbie doll. Um, actually, that sounds like a compliment. If someone said that about me, that would make my day. <laughs> but it can be used derogatory. You know what I mean? And I think it's an interesting discussion as to like what Barbie has done when they initially, when you think about it, Barbie was introduced to the market to be a role model for women because of her career values and her personal independence. So for it to kind of have flipped and caused a lot of young girls in their developmental ages, the most powerful ages in terms of developing who you are and your sense of self, the fact that she's kind of done the opposite and caused them to doubt themselves or not feel good enough is an interesting discussion, let's say. But just briefly on Aqua, you know the song, we love the song, it is iconic, Barbie Girl. Now, Mattel actually sued them. They sued the Danish-Norwegian group on 11 counts, claiming that they had misrepresented the ideals and values of Barbie and presented her as a sex object, referring to the line, um, I'm a blonde bimbo girl which is so unbelievably ironic and pot calling kettle black and don't fall, don't throw glass in stone how don't throw stone in glass houses would you believe i get paid by the word as a voice actor and i can't string a sentence together they alleged that the song broke copyrights and trademarks that it tarnished the values of barbie in a time when mattel was trying to ramp up a marketing effort and it kind of went back and forth for a little bit. The band's record label tried to countersue for defamation, but ultimately the case was actually dismissed. And it's just stupid to me. It is just so stupid to me. And anyone I've spoken to about this, because I've known that Aqua had a bad uh, relationship with Mattel for a while because I knew Mattel kind of did them dirty. I just didn't really know the specifics of it. But now that I do, it just, it's so stupid because like, why wouldn't you want to use this song that is essentially just like straight advertising? They could have been like, hey, this is an iconic song because it is, it's catchy, it stands up today and used it in marketing efforts and just changed some of the lyrics. But they didn't. They decided to sue instead. But then hysterically in 2009, they did use the song when marketing success was really slow and they needed to kind of ramp it up. They used the song and changed the lyrics in a promotional video. So like exactly what I just said, why didn't you just have a nap when the song originally came out, take a breath, maybe rake some of those sand things where you like the relaxation sand pods, do a little bit of Zen work over there, not take, hear me out, not take them to court and just use one of the greatest advertising songs of all time. Are you kidding me? Sorry, I just, this is unrelated. Well, maybe it isn't, but I find Americans are very quick to sue. You guys sue as if it's like taking the trash out. I'm too tired for that. Which brings us to where we are today and, you know, the main reason why I decided to do a deep dive on Barbie. Greta Gerwig's Barbie is coming out in a couple of days as of posting this video. Um, Barbie has had so many 
TV shows and she's had over 40 movies, but this will be the very first live action Barbie ever to be produced. It was actually announced in 2009 and Sony got the rights in 2014, but then they lost the rights and Warner Brother got the rights and that's when Greta Gerwig was announced as director. While it was under Sony, Amy Schumer was up for the role of Barbie and I've got absolutely nothing to say on that. And Hathaway was also considered, but then Greta Gerwig came on and Sony saved the day and Margot Robbie will be our perfect Barbie. That's my thoughts. I think she's going to smash it. And I actually think Greta Gerwig's approach for this is perfect. No one really knew what to expect unless you're a fan of Greta Gerwig, I suppose. But when we first saw that trailer, it was like, yeah, this is exactly what a movie about Barbie needs to be. Particularly that part in the trailer where it's like Ken's talking to Barbie and he's like, do you want to come over tonight because we're boyfriend, girlfriend? She's like, to do what? He's like, I actually don't know. That is perfect. And I also think Ryan Gosling is going to knock it out of the park and will squash any of those suggestions that he was not the perfect Barbie, uh, not the perfect Ken. As of posting this, it is a Wednesday. Barbie comes out in Friday on two, in two days. So go see Barbie. Have some fun. Go see Oppenheimer as well. On the same day, if you want to be as psycho as I am, I believe the order has to be Oppenheimer at 10 or 11 a.m. because it's a long one and it's also a really heavy, hard-hitting Christopher Nolan nuclear war movie. So serious. And then you come out of Oppenheimer, go to a boozy lunch, and then go see an afternoon showing of Barbie. Then do dinner and drinks after and go for a boogie. That's the order. I don't make the rules, but by God do I follow them. But that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Learning Tings. Just a tiny little bit of housekeeping here at the end as well. This is actually the first episode that I have recorded since releasing the first episode, the Loch Ness Monster episode. Uh, the gambling episode was pre-recorded before that was published. So this is my first chance to say thank you so much to everyone who's sent me a message and, and said they enjoyed it or given me feedback or topics. Please continue to do so. Please leave a review on your podcast app of choice if you're listening on audio. Uh, that would be much appreciated. And then a thumbs up and a subscribe on the YouTube channel. And I will see you guys next time.